Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you by Reedley College, educating the next generation of agriculturalists in advanced technology, efficient production practices, and food safety. Now here's your hosts of Voices of the Valley, Dennis Donahue and Candace Wilson. This is Dennis Donahue. I'm the director of Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology in Salinas, and pleased to be back for another episode of Voices of the Valley with my good friend and partner, uh, Candace Wilson. Candace, welcome. Thank you very much. How are you today? I'm doing well, and I'm kind of excited about this uh, particular episode because we get to uh, talk to a good friend from down under, Sarah Nolet, in a very positive way, whose reputation always precedes her. So I'm glad we have a chance to visit with her today. Sarah, welcome, and great to see you. Dennis, Candace, thanks so much for having me. We're excited. I, we both have a lot of questions. And, you know, what I thought we'd do is just kind of jump in. You know, what we typically like to do with our guests is just have them uh, talk a little bit about your background, though you've got a pretty extensive one. So I, that may be a fuller answer than most, but that would be okay because you really do have a terrific background. And I'd kind of like you to start out with talk about your background and your evolution and how you got to ag tech because that wasn't a straight line. No, it was definitely not a straight line. So I grew up in California, not too far from you guys and played a good amount of soccer actually growing up in places like Davis and and Fresno in the heat back then. I guess my parents both worked in the semiconductor industry and the kind of line from them was, you know, go make money and then do something good for the world. So I listened at first, I went out to the East Coast for school, studied computer science and systems engineering, worked in the defense industry, um, was pretty focused on the technology angles. But there was kind of a moment in my mid 20s where I just started to realize that the industry wasn't an industry I was super passionate about. And the while the technology was cool, the private sector was really moving a lot faster and kind of coming to eat our lunch, so to speak. And so I said, I've got to do something else. I'm not sure what that is. Went on holiday to South America and then ended up deciding to stay pretty unexpectedly and live in South America for what became almost a year. And that entire time I was living on and traveling around visiting farms and something in my brain clicked and was like, agriculture is what you're going to do for the next 10 years, if not the rest of your life. And the technologies we've been building in the defense industry, sensors, satellites could be applied to agriculture. It could help with environmental sustainability. The people were fascinating. The industry was global, big systems problems. And I was totally hooked. So that was kind of the, I guess, transition or pivotal moment from non-ag into into the ag world. Well, you obviously picked up quickly. It was a global game and you played globally uh from day one in quote unquote, your ag tech career. So you head east, you go to Latin America, and now of course you're in Australia. How did that happen? (laughs) Yeah, um, it was not actually planned or strategic. I always wish that I could say, you know, I I got out a map and and kind of looked at it and said, oh, here's this, you know, ag economy and I've got to just pick up and move there. That's not what happened. Um, I probably wasn't that strategic. I was back on the East Coast after South America and grad school and had a number of kind of operational advisory roles in the ag tech space when my other half said, hey, I just got a job offer in Australia. What do you think? And pretty naively, I said, well, you know, in the worst case, we'll go live on the beach for a year. And in the best case, they're probably doing something in agriculture. Turns out they do quite a lot in agriculture agriculture here right. in Australia and you know massive export economy world class research really um, on the cutting edge of climate given the climate volatility here and lack of subsidies and so it was a fantastic place to come thinking about ag tech and innovation because there really wasn't much commercialization and now there is there's world class startups we've started a fund and so in many ways I got really lucky and yeah it's been just over 6 years now and still loving it here in Australia trying to figure out what kind of accent I uh, will or won't have <laughs> Yeah, no, you've got a few different ones to either sort out or or blend. 
So, Candice, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you jump in because if you don't, I've got I've got a bunch of questions. I, it's true. I would just like, can you expand a little bit more on your role today? How what does a typical day look like for you, and what are you most focused and energized around? Yeah, so we are a venture firm. So we called Tenacious Ventures. Everything we do is in the intersection of what we call digitally native agriculture. So this idea that new technologies and innovations are unlocking new potential all along the value chain. And yet that if we don't have incentives or drivers to do anything different, we won't. And so for us, that that's our second theme, which is really climate solutions. So the combination of kind of new and emerging technologies, reimagining the system, and then the imperative and opportunity that is climate is where we spend 100% of our time. What that ends up looking like is investing in early stage startups. So partnering with these companies to enact change or drive a pathway to change somewhere along the value chain from on-farm robotics and insect pest detection all the way through to processing and waste management and alternative protein. So part of what we do is, you know, scout for, talk to, look at, evaluate, and partner with startups, obviously raise the money needed to be able to do that from our investors. And then we also believe that venture capital alone isn't really enough for agriculture. And if you're not truly embedded in and working with the existing system, then you, you know, you're just applying the Silicon Valley templates to an industry that maybe that doesn't work. And so we spend a lot of our time working with the existing system. So we run community or, or cohort-based models for corporates and industry bodies who are building capability, maybe not investing, but building capability to get involved with this intersection of, of tech and climate. So that might look like one we just did, which was on emissions and carbon intensity of the supply chain for an animal health company, a seed company, and a food processing company kind of coming together to say, what might this future look like? How do we deal with our scope through emissions? What kind of technologies are involved? You know, please help. And so, yeah, that's uh, like no shortage of different people to talk to each day, but all, I guess, around this theme of climate plus technology in food and agriculture. You know, one of the things I'm kind of intrigued about is, you know, a lot of times, uh, and you spend a lot of time with growers, and I'm going to guess uh, California in our neck of the woods has a lot to learn from Australia, because in many respects, Australian growers have been dealing with issues that have really now come home to roost in a really hard way, particularly as it relates to lack of water. You know, you mentioned you invested in some companies, you know, this whole issue of climate and carbon, it feels like it's still setting up up here. What does that look like in terms of companies or products that growers should be paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, growers in some ways are on the cold face of this all over the world. Um, Australia in particular has been, you know, we've had fires and droughts and now floods like the last four years, not to mention COVID and supply chain and fertilizer prices. Like it's been a lot of volatility and a bit of a tough road here in the last couple of years. So there's a number of solutions, right? You can think about mitigation and we really look at it through the lens of agriculture has this super unique opportunity to both do less bad as in reduce emissions. And that's part of what every industry needs to do for the human race and and addressing climate change, and yet also do more good and so provide decarbonization solutions to other areas of the economy in terms of biodiversity, in terms of water quality, in terms of soil carbon sequestration. So ag is in this really unique position where it's not just like your evil, you know, transition to some new practice. I think that's where some of the narrative gets focused. But what we get excited about is ag can actually be a solution for a lot of these challenges that we're facing. So in areas of yeah, biodiversity and, and water and carbon, ag has this really unique role to play. And for growers who are on the coalface, like, you know, there's all these opportunities now, I think, as we listen to them and learn from them, not tell them what they should be doing or, um, you know, prescribing different practices, but to say like, you know, what's been changing for you? What's the future going to look like? What solutions are you needing to be able to farm and produce into the future? And then what solutions, you know, might we be able to think about that work for you and for unlocking these other opportunities for the broader economy? 
Is there a part, whether it's a country, a specific state or commodity, are there any groups that are leading the charge and kind of providing a best in class in this area? Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because like, what is best and would it even apply elsewhere in the world? So I think we need to make sure we're not, and this is, of course, isn't a dig at you can just make sure it's not like perfection is the enemy of progress. Like we need to be trying and experimenting and learning on the way to whatever might end up working. And by the way, whatever ends up working, like won't work for long. Cause that's the point. Like if we get stuck in these kind of silver bullet solutions or mentalities or the best nature will be ahead of us no matter what. And so I guess that's kind of human nature to seek that like right answer. And yet it's just not going to be true in agriculture where I do gain a lot of hope is many of the industries here in Australia have come out with carbon neutral targets, you know, setting that around 2030, for example, with the red meat industry here, different sustainability frameworks and plans, um, increasingly collaborating on, you know, what are metrics across industries? Because if you're a grain farmer, you might also farm cotton and you might also have sheep or livestock. And so if we just silo these solutions, they're not going to work, but also we might need to think about tree crops because as climate change comes, we might need to diversify even further. So I think there's both per industry solutions, local grower groups really innovating and saying what's going to work in our region and what practices can we share amongst our, you know, trusted growers in in our area, as well as like across industries, knowing that the landscape's really changing. I'm going to guess you have met resistance from growers along the way, but has that kind of shift towards, hey, let's get ready for the future already taken place? Or is that still a big part of some of the challenges you still face? Because, you know, one of the things Candace and I routinely talk about wherever we get a chance is, you know, how do you, how do you change the narrative on behalf of ag? Because we think ag does do a lot of good things. And we do think ag has a unique opportunity to contribute to some of the solutions everybody's looking for. And, you know, you write, you have your own podcast, you have a following. How difficult is it to change the narrative and frankly, to get grower buy-in to like, hey, let's, th- this, there's an opportunity here. Definitely part of being public and putting ideas out there is having thick skin because definitely not everyone is going to like them. And, and sometimes that really sucks. And yet it's it's part of changing the conversation and part of having the conversations. I would say the other big thing is like asking questions. I mean, I, I don't farm for a living. I haven't farmed for a living. And so I don't presume to know the answers in your region or for your farm or for farming writ large. And so I think there's a real opportunity. And that's actually why I started the podcast to, to just ask the questions. You know, what have you changed that's surprising? We talked to a farmer a couple of years ago who was very um, Zabratiker grain farmer and was like, I don't like sheep. I don't like livestock. I'm a grain farmer. That's my identity. That's my family. That's my history. And he told this amazing story of over a couple of years, like starting to try different weed management tactics, had resistance challenges, had cost challenges, and just couldn't figure out kind of how to solve this problem. And then started to see his neighbor who had brought sheep in and he had two new revenue streams in the form of wool and meat and a weed management solution for, you know, fallow weed management or, um, you know, parts of the production system. And he was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to change my mind on this, right? Because like, here's this opportunity and I don't like it. And so how do I innovate around my constraints? And so maybe I'll bring in a livestock manager to bring in and look after the sheep and I don't have to do it, but I need to be open to this new solution. And so I just love the opportunity to ask questions and hear stories of how farmers are already doing this rather than coming in with like, we know these solutions, here's what you need to be doing. And so I think asking those questions is is pretty powerful and something that gives me a lot of energy because they're really the ones that are doing it and are seeing climate change you know, firsthand impacting their livelihoods and their futures and their kids, not to mention our, our food. Are there specific technologies that you have been most energized around that you think are exciting kind of, I don't know if game changing is the right word, but you know, that gives you a lot of hope on potential value that they can bring. It's funny, right? Like the technology, it ends up 
sounding sexy and that's what people want to talk about. It's like, oh, this sensor can do these things or, oh, we have this robot that can do these things. We try to be really diligent to think a lot more about the business model. Like the technology is great, but if people aren't going to use it, if it isn't going to meaningfully tap into your psychology, into your operations, into your overall picture, into the overall value chain, it's just never going to get adopted. And it's going to be cool technology sitting on a shelf, probably burning cash. And so we try to spend a lot more time on that. And one of the big things we've been thinking a lot about is a lot of the early ways of ag tech, as we call it, and especially precision ag, have been selling directly to the farmer and have come up against a lot of these adoption challenges around like, wait a second, yes, I could you know, save 20% here on my diesel pumping for my irrigation, but that would mean I'm putting at risk my entire crop because what if I get the water wrong? Or it would mean that I've got to reallocate my staff in terms of thinking how they go out and what decisions they make. And I don't really want a robot turning on and off my pumps because I trust, you know, so-and-so to go do it. And so we've run up against all these operational complexities and we haven't seen adoption. Whereas the real kind of beneficiary, I guess, increasingly is the supply chain. Like are these players on either side of the farmer that have big incentives and big balance balance sheets to be able to help with with these adoption challenges. And so what we're starting to see now is companies changing their business model to partner with upstream and downstream supply chain players to help cover or subsidize or incentivize the cost of adoption so that the growers still get the benefits they're getting. But we also have wider spread adoption because of of that business model challenge and, and tapping into players on either side of the farmer. And I think that's where we're starting to get really excited, especially in some of these like precision ag technologies that thus far haven't really seen widespread adoption. I always like to tell people I Googled you. So when I Googled you and went through your LinkedIn and went through some of your, you know, some of your stuff and, you know, I was intrigued by your comment and I I think you just alluded to it. You know, we're still dealing with too much push technology. So is the answer to that basically what you've just said that, you know, in our neck of the woods, we talk a lot about, look, unless we get to co-development, we're not going to get a lot of traction. But to some degree that speaks to the technology. You're you're going deeper in terms of, okay, well, what about the business model and, and partnering and really moving it into the culture of the company as well? Because I mean, I think your observation is right on. There, there's still a lot of pushing and it slows things down. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that your spot on there, Dennis, like there's the product development challenge and understanding the users and the problems and the context in which they operate and getting buy-in to develop and like test and trial and improve your solution so that it does actually solve the problem. But just because something solves the problem doesn't mean we will adopt it. I mean, we all see that in our own lives, right? We know that we should like go to bed early and work out every day and eat certain foods and like do all these things and we just don't do them. So it's really not like the solutions aren't fit for purpose. It's like our incentives and our adoption, our behavior aren't lined up. And so that's the part where I think the business models can really unlock the scale. And that's where we get really excited. No, that's great insight. Uh, speaking of business, we just ran each other in San Francisco at the Rethink Ag. And one of the things I was struck by at that conference, everyone was so excited that they were together again. And, you know, as you got together with a lot of people in a big conference, what was your takeaway from that event? Where is ag tech, you know, particularly on the investment side? And then if you were to kind of crystal ball it, what was your take on today and what did it start you thinking about for tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it was great to be back with everyone in person. We raised and launched and have been investing all during COVID. And so we have been like truly, you know, remote first. And so there's just a lot of people where I've spoken to a ton and never actually met in person. And so that was a pretty powerful experience. I think there are some areas that a lot of people are talking about carbon, obviously being the big example of that. And what we're starting to think about is a little bit of the nuance of those conversations. So a couple examples, one, like what is whole of farm electrification look like? Yes, we have different types of equipment becoming electrified, but what is the intersection of the power usage of existing irrigation equipment 
plus the energy utilities and their demand planning for regional areas, plus needing to charge, plus if we've got green ammonia and different kinds of on-farm fertilizer production or waste management or digesters, like there's really different energy requirements on farms. And are we set up for that? What does that mean? What business models might exist there? So that's kind of one that we have few answers to, but some questions around. Another, I would say more near term is like enteric emissions. So in the livestock space in particular, you've got big challenges around methane. And so if you're a livestock producer hearing a lot of the hype right now around, I can graze my cattle in this way and sell a carbon offset to a tech company. Okay. But what about when your processor or food company or someone downstream of you has a scope three emissions problem and they need you to be selling, you know, right at the edge of the farm gate, you know, carbon neutral beef or milk, and you've sold these credits elsewhere. Like, what is that? mean and what are the challenges there that might arise. And so I think there's a really interesting set of solutions around enteric emissions, whether that's dealing with manure and effluent, whether that's dealing with actual biogenic emissions. Is it, you know, people are talking about seaweed, is it feed additives? What are the forms they're in? What are the adoption incentives? How does that play with the supply chain? So I think that's a really interesting area that we're spending a lot of time on. And then the third would be as climate change increases the severity and frequency of extreme weather events, what does that mean for different risk management tools that farmers need? Is it you know just insurance? Is it new forms of insurance? What does digitally native insurance look like? Is it finance? Is it hedging and marketing decisions? Like what do the fact that we have you know near constant, near perfect resolution imagery globally via satellites mean for insurance? Like, do we really have to go out and like assess that the crop did experience hail or does more of a parametric insurance approach make more sense? And then is that embedded into products with the value chain and how, what tools exist there? And does that even apply in the developed world or in countries like the US where the government's already pretty involved in insurance? And so that's some of the stuff we're thinking about. And does that open up new markets, new tools, and you know, are there opportunities there that help manage the risk of climate change for farmers? Now, is Australia set up from, uh, you mentioned insurance products. So in our neck of the woods, the Midwest, there's a lot of moving parts in terms of price supports and the farm bill, et cetera, et cetera. We tend to be in the West, you know, just uh, it pays your money and you, you take your chances. And, you know, we don't have a lot of those types of insurances. What's the environment in Australia, more like the Midwest or more like us? Yeah, I would say that it's much less subsidized, like there isn't the sort of farm bill equivalent or some of those programs. So there are different types of insurance, different types of adoption of, of those products, but it's not at all as much of a government system. And where we've seen innovation actually coming from Australia, but applied to different markets is looking at like developing countries to say, well, right now it just doesn't make sense to offer a smallholder farmer, you know, farming a hectare, an acre a day to any kind of insurance product because the cost of acquisition and their ability to pay is like, just doesn't make sense. But when it's truly digitally native and it's via a satellite you know, detection that triggers an event and it just pays out and it's embedded in the supply chain from the, you know, grain trader who's buying their products. Like, do you open up this whole new market? And so I think that's where we're starting to spend some time is like, is it actually a different market where these products start? And then we apply a kind of reverse innovation process to figure out, okay, what would that mean for places like Australia and the US? Yeah. So yeah, that, there's some interesting challenges there for sure. That is interesting. Something our growers at least ought to contemplate and, uh, and, yeah. and Western growers. Interesting. Okay. Candice? I'm just curious when you, again, look across the globe and the different kind of regulations that exist in different countries, are there countries that we're looking to in terms of what might be the next biggest priorities? Or when you think of, you keep referencing carbon, is that a global priority? Are there different priorities in each country? Can you talk a little bit about 
the unique challenges and some of the more global challenges. Yeah. I mean, I definitely look at a lot of things through a climate change lens. So, and I appreciate that for others that may or may not be on the top of their list, it's, it's definitely the lens that we choose to look through. So I think in that context, one of the big regulatory drivers is, is Europe. You know, they've been sort of further uh, advanced on regulations around carbon declarations, around sourcing requirements, around things like that. And so the drivers for not just I think when we start this conversation, it often feels, especially to a grower listening, that it's like, I'm going to come get regulations on my farm that prevent me from doing what I want to do. And that is really frustrating. And I totally get that. I actually don't mean that as much as I mean for some of these food companies and downstream players, fertilizer companies, input companies, they are now under increasing pressure to think about their emissions footprint, both their operations, what kind of energy their factories run on, but also their supply chains. And so as they need to report on and reduce the emissions in their value chains, that touches producers. And yes, again, we could see this as just a stick that's coming or a regulation that's coming to say, you have to farm this way. I actually believe that a lot of the opportunities will come in a okay, how do we both solve our need to reduce emissions and go on that journey as a big company with your need to have better and different tools or viable ways to manage climate risk and continue to produce and have diversification into the future? And so that's a really interesting conversation to say, how could I, as a supply chain player, actually partner with growers to go on some kind of journey that future-proofs both of our operations? And that's where it starts to get really exciting. And yes, we've kind of needed a regulatory driver to kick off some of those conversations, But now that they're kicking off, it's creating, I believe, some pretty interesting opportunities. And how do you guys engage with, how do you stay connected to the regulatory bodies? How do you engage with the supply chain? What kind of, when you're thinking about different companies to be investing in, what's that kind of support in connecting and helping build them up and understand the whole market dynamic? Yeah. I mean, it's tough, right? We're, if I'm honest, going through this, like where are areas where we can create that environment or that support system for our portfolio companies as in, look, here's a pool of growers that you can go talk to. Or is it that they actually need to do that because some of our companies are in citrus and some are downstream in waste management for real estate companies and some of them are selling to broad acre farmers and like, so us doing that just wouldn't make sense. We'd have to you know, know every farmer on the planet and we're never going to do that um, versus other areas where it's like all of our companies are struggling with fundraising and telling their story that's often customer facing that really resonates with a story to investors where that's a totally different way of thinking. So is that an area where we can help and repeatably help? I think to your point, Candice, around regulation, it kind of falls for us in the bucket of like, we need to be watching it, understanding it and paying attention, but there's nothing that we can really do that will apply to all of our portfolio companies, at least at our scale currently, because again, they're all in really different areas. So it's kind of like for that particular investment, have we looked at the regulatory risk? Are they paying attention to it? Do we see big barriers there that are going to mean that success is largely outside of the company's control? And then probably that's not an investment that we would make. Sarah, talk a little bit about, it It seems to me kind of from day one, once you've gotten involved in the whole ag tech scene, have really gravitated towards getting close to growers with all your activities and creating that intersection. But I'm really intrigued, you know, again, I go back to, I Googled you. So, you know, your farmers to founders and your global shapers community. I mean, and I love, I love the description of Tenacious Ventures, a high support, high conviction venture fund, you know, so you obviously walk the walk, you know, one of the things, and we work with some great growers here. And uh, to me, it's really terrific when you find a grower that gets as energized about all this as we do trying to make things happen. Is that grower community of yours, are you uh, turning into a pretty fair Pied Piper, bringing them along in this journey with you? Yeah. I mean, that's probably for, for them to say more than it is for me. And it's, it's actually something that I 
feel, if I'm honest, like angst around, like I really try to get out there, but like, I don't have mud on my boots. I'm sitting two blocks from the beach. Like I can't claim to be a farmer. And so, and yet like I believe that I'm adding value to the industry and that the work we're doing is really important. And so how do you embrace the fact that we bring a different perspective and yet need to be connected to that boots on the ground perspective? And both of those things can exist in, in a little bit of tension. So yeah, the podcast is a great way to be talking to producers and to just have a reason, you know, at a conference or over Twitter to reach out and say, hey, can we have a chat for an hour and just, just hit record? Some of those relationships have just continued to flourish. I was messaging back and forth with a grower this week who I, I think met initially at a work workshop I was running in a regional area, but then followed him on Twitter and then had him on the podcast. And then when a conference needed a producer on a panel, I invited him to come. And then we were in his area, well, roughly in his area. And he drove four hours to come meet my partner and I for dinner. And so they got to meet. And then we were messaging this weekend around like the future of sheep genetics. And so like these things take time and there's no like one silver bullet way to do it. These truly are relationships. And yes, I will have relationships and do have relationships with farmers and also with Silicon Valley VCs. And I think that's the unique position that we sit in. And I'll always want more time on farm and with farmers and it just doesn't scale. Like you can spend all day driving out to these different farms. And so yeah, doing enough of it that you feel connected and can ask the right questions and feel like you have an understanding with also enough humility to say like, I don't know, and I don't farm. And so I know the right people to call, but I don't actually have the answers. That's for sure important. I don't know, but I know exactly who will know. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, the other thing, and you use the word scale, and I think that's an important one. And you mentioned something a little earlier, you know, I think obviously a lot of growers and farmers and companies, they like to take on whatever they can on their own, of course, and those things make sense. But this issue of kind of working together, I'm sure there's some exceptions to this, but technology by its very nature seeks to scale. And so at some level, you know, and I think kind of part of the maturation process in our neck of the woods is people in the end kind of realize, hey, I'm not a venture person. This is our core business, growing things maybe, processing things maybe. What have you observed? I know you talk all over the world. Do you think folks are kind of beginning to understand this notion of, uh, hey, look, if it's technology and it's going to scale, you know, we're not necessarily going to pick up the phone and call our competitors, but, you know, there's got to be a way to allow the technology to, uh, you know, folks are going to compete and cooperate at the same time. And, and technology just seems to me something you seldom compete on at, at some level. I mean, in certain instances, yes, but broadly speaking, not so much. There's a couple of things you said there, Dennis, that I, I would tease out. One is the processing operations of modern day agricultural production, especially in places like California, are quite technologically advanced and increasingly so. We've got optical sorting and sensors. We've got different software to integrate finances with you know predictive analytics and contracting. So I think there is increasingly a good amount of technology there. And same thing on the farm, right? Like you can't look at a modern day you know harvesting equipment or, or things like that and say that there isn't technology here where I think we're still there are lots of opportunities for this pre-competitive collaboration that you're talking about is actually at the, where there's still technical risk and you need that connection to growers. And we're getting it over that hump of like, can this work in this environment? Will this make sense? And here's a bunch of work that otherwise 30 companies are going to have to do, and we could just do it together. And then they could innovate in these areas where it is useful to compete. And, and I actually often point to you guys at the Harvest Automation Challenge as such a good example of that, where, you know, here's this tech stack that needs to be built out. We're seeing 50 companies around the world all bang their head against the same wall. Let's just build that wall together and then they can go ahead and compete in these other areas. So I think it's a pretty good example of, of how that can work. And yet doesn't work unless there are growers involved and that there's an incentivized coordinating body to do a lot of that heavy lifting to make it work. So um, yeah, I actually 
actually use you guys as a good example of ingredients for success there. I'd be curious if that, if that resonates, like, does it feel like it was a successful example? For, well, from well, well, I'm going to Google you again and see if that shows up somewhere. So we, we, we already liked you anyway, but we appreciate you even more now. <laughs> Hey, Dennis, maybe as we, you know, the first time that we met Sarah and I saw you on stage, we were really talking about the future skills that are going to be necessary in agriculture. And so maybe we wrap up on that topic of what kind of talent is going to be needed to support agriculture? What does the future worker look like? And I'm curious, as you focus on climate change, maybe that's an area too, where there's a unique opportunity or skill set there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think what's super exciting about the fortunate position that we sit in as you know a venture firm is we have all these portfolio companies that are doing really different things. Some are just software selling into carbon project developers. Some are you know hardware companies selling to supply chain players that are working with farmers. So really different kinds of companies. And truly, they are hiring everything from like artificial intelligence, you know, advanced engineers trained out of places like Google, all the way through to electricians and mechanics and everything in between. We've got entomologists, we've got chefs, we've got food inventors. I mean, these are literally field service technicians. Like there could not be a broader range of humans that our portfolio companies are actively hiring for. And so I think the exciting thing is if people want to work in this industry, and I can't imagine a better one to work in because it has environmental benefits, the people are amazing. There's so much potential. People are going to continue to have to eat and yet big challenges, especially with climate, whatever skill set you have, like there's an opportunity in agriculture and increasingly in ag tech. And so I just think that couldn't be more exciting. And yet we need to raise the profile of that. And we need to think about developing those skills. Interesting at Readly, there was a good amount of discussion around more of the soft skills. So things like writing and written communication, things like, you know, business skills. And I think that's increasingly important. I mean, as we've seen in the remote COVID world, if you struggle to do written communication, you can get really disconnected from the rest of the workforce because that's a big way we've had to communicate asynchronously and through writing. And so the future workforce absolutely needs to have better written communication skills. Like that's just going to be part of the world. And same thing with communication skills overall, which is some combination of, you know, competence and qualitative skills and, and that stuff squishy and kind of hard to think about, especially, you know, maybe for politicians, but like so critical. I mean, how does a, a venture capitalist talk to a farmer and, and a mechatronic engineer in the same room as an electrician if if we haven't you know really thought about how those conversations need to happen and that's where the opportunity sit. Well you know Candace you read my mind with that question you know and interestingly enough you know we just had another event with Karen Ross this past week at Hartnell so we are three quarters of the way through what you participated in at the beginning and uh, Readly actually uh, they're very committed to this program and they're our sponsor for the next couple of quarters. And so we're grateful for that. But we also, you know, just become increasingly convicted that if we don't have the right skills, that's going to slow down the adoption thing as well. So this is important, this conversation. That's an important conversation as well. Even though it may be perceived as kind of soft skills, it's like, hey, if some people can't make this stuff, service this stuff and operate this stuff, it's going to be a problem. Yeah, and it's actually soft skills for employers as well. One of my favorite examples is a good friend of mine and, and actually one of our investors is a John Deere dealer in the US. And he was talking to me recently about how they're really struggling to get local talent and, you know, do, do kids want to leave the area or, or pursue other careers? And is it actually cool to, you know, work with them anymore? And so one of the things they did was had an actual signing day, like as if you're getting recruited to play a sport in college mm -hmm. and go off, but to like celebrate these you know young adults making this decision. And it's like, let's get the friends and family around. Let's have a table. Let's get the press. Let's get you a social media worthy photo. Like, let's make it really cool to come work here and like have a recruiting process. And it's like, you've committed and we've committed to you and like make it meaningful. And I think that's such a good example of how 
employers also need to transform. Like it's not just put job ads on some website and like get mad that candidates don't come through the front door. It's like, no, you need to develop different skills too, to think about recruiting the future workforce. I think that's such a powerful example that, um, yeah, I really like to share. Yeah, no, no, that's a great one. Boy, that one's really intriguing. Well, certainly, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley where, you know, your family hails from, I, I mean, Competing for labor and human capital has been going on for a long time. I'll never forget my first visit to Google. Maybe that's why I always Google people because of this story. So I had to go meet somebody up there. And, uh, you know, my wife never gives me any money, but I'm not supposed to use my credit card. But I got, I had my credit card. So we meet in the, uh, this huge cafeteria. I mean, it's cavernous. And so I asked my uh, Google host, I said, uh, can I use a credit card here? <laughs> and he looked at me and goes, what are you talking about? This this stuff's all free. And, you know, the point being, you know, when you're competing for labor and you, you want to keep the talent happy, you do stuff. And uh, God only knows if there's an industry that's uh, competing for labor right now, it's agriculture. Yeah, absolutely. And so how do you, how do you get creative? How do you think about the relationships you want to build with your staff and your future staff? Like what are the changes as employers that we need to embody, not just as workers and trainers of workers? I think is where things get interesting. Yeah. Well, Candace, anything else from you? I, if you have something, uh, go ahead. And otherwise, I'm going to give Sarah the last word. You're probably one of those, you're on the air so much where occasionally you get off and go, ah, I wish I had said. So if there's any wish I had said or something we should have covered, I want to make sure we give you the chance to do that. That's um, It's really good learnings for me here, guys, because I often ask guests that question. And now that I'm sitting in the hot seat, I'm like, wow, that question's really tough. Like, I, I don't know what else, what else I should have said. <laughs> the first thing that does come to mind, though, is you asked about the role of, of farmers in, in this whole innovation space. And one of the big things I really believe is like, farmers can and should be more than just customers of innovation. And so one, you know, example that we talked about before was co-developing, you know, that leads to possible equity incentives, to discounts, to access to preferred support. So actually going on the development journey, we have um, primary producers as investors in our fund who want to get exposure to, you know, a portfolio of investments in this space. It can be founders of tech companies. We have farmers who are also founders of companies we've invested in. And so I think especially for folks working at and in farms and running farms, thinking creatively about ways to get involved in innovation that aren't just like waiting for it to be ready to adopt is where I get really excited and where I hope this audience, you know, that you guys have can maybe think a bit about or share some stories with me of, of ways that they're doing that today. That sounds good. Candace, anything from you? I don't think so. So nice to see you, Sarah. It's impossible not to feel your energy around the topic and stuff. So thank you for everything that you're doing. Oh, thank you. And thanks so much for having me, guys. It was really fun. Yeah, no, it was great to see you and good luck with all your activities. You've got a full slate. So we're going to keep an eye on you and I'm going to keep Googling you so I can keep <laughs> learning stuff and, and try and become a fast follower where appropriate and terrific to see you. And thanks for joining us today. Awesome. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks, Candice. Candice, what do you think? Should we do it again soon? I will be here. Sounds good. Thanks everyone for joining us for Voices of the Valley. And as you heard from uh, my good friend and partner in Candice, we're coming back soon with another episode of Voices of the Valley. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Reedley College. To learn more about Reedley College's Agriculture and Natural Resources program and the courses offered in ag technology, food safety, and plant science, you can visit reedleycollege.edu.